Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad. I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dr. Kyle Dempsey. Kyle is a partner at MVM Partners. That's a company that invests in high-growth healthcare businesses and has been doing that since the late 1990s. With teams in Boston and London, MVM has a broad global investment outlook spanning medtech, pharmaceuticals, diagnostics, CROs, CMOs, digital health, and other sectors of healthcare. Kyle completed his medical studies at Harvard Medical School and his MBA at Harvard Business School. He also holds a bachelor's in biochemistry from Bowdoin College. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to our show. Pleasure's all mine, guys. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, absolutely, Kyle. So, you know, we've chatted before and I've learned a lot about your amazing, amazing background. For those in the audience who may not be as familiar with your story and to put into put things into perspective for our listeners. Can you give us a brief summary of your early life story and, and how and why you decided to go into clinical medicine? Sure. So I'll try to make a somewhat complex story relatively brief. Um, but the short summary is that I had some healthcare access issues when I was in high school. Um, and that whole situation helped me to decide to pursue a career in medicine. Um, and just to fill in a bit more detail about all that. So I grew up in a super rural town. Uh, in Maine. It's about 70 miles from the nearest grocery store or movie theater. Um, and my family were really multi-generational mill workers. Um, and like many uh, manufacturing jobs in the U.S., uh, unfortunately, that mill shut down with time. Um, and what ultimately happened is that my family, like many others in the community, uh, ended up living without health insurance for a period of time. Um, so in that context, I actually had a really bad uh, shoulder injury in high school. So basically, I was swinging a baseball bat, uh, dislocated my shoulder. And the challenge was that I couldn't actually get healthcare access to get help with that. And the problem is really twofold. One was that since we lived in such an isolated area, it wasn't convenient nor feasible to find a lot of orthopedic surgeons. Most of them were, you know, 50 to 100 miles away from our home. And of the limited ones that you could find, they really weren't willing to see patients who didn't have insurance and or who couldn't cash. And so, you know, to fast forward the clock, I ultimately didn't get cared for by an orthopedic surgeon, which is what should have happened. But the silver lining on the whole situation was that we had a family friend who was a physical therapist and had just finished her training. And so she came to my house free of charge. Um, And over the course of several months, helped me to rehabilitate my shoulder and get me back to normal. And the short of it is I've never had a problem since. But, you know, when I think about, you know, key turning points in my life, this was really a critical one uh, because up to that point, I actually wasn't considering a career in medicine. I always thought I'd be an engineer. But it was at that point that I really started to have this vision of, of helping other people with healthcare access. Because the takeaway from my story is that no child, um, in my case, a high schooler, should ever go without needed, you know, medical care. And so the the vision from that point forward was to become a practicing clinician and to help more patients get that healthcare access. Though my vision for how that how that has how how I would deliver that has evolved over time. 
Kyle, that's an incredibly inspiring story. And, and thank you for actually sharing it with us. Uh, you know, we've had many guests actually highlight the importance of lack of access to healthcare and, and how it's actually shaped their upbringing. We had Shinaz who grew up in South Africa and, and now is a COO of a public biotech in America. And, and she sort of talked about lack of access to healthcare growing up in apartheid South Africa and what that sort of you know, how that changed the trajectory of her career and her interests. We've had Claire Wagner from the Gates MRI come in and chat with us about lack of access uh, to healthcare and to vaccines all around the world. But oftentimes when we talk about lack of access, we don't actually consider what happens within America. Sometimes we'll talk about sort of in urban America, but what happens in sort of some of those rural states or in, in sort of when you're 50 or 100 miles away, like you said, from the nearest orthopedic surgeon, the devastation that can actually cause to a family who doesn't have insurance or access to transportation is massive. So thank you for bringing into light that issue. We really appreciate it. Sort of moving on here beyond clinical medicine, you know, our first interview for the podcast was with Dr. Dan Gabriel-Medin, who's a partner at Flare Capital, who has, you know, invested in Somatis, Eden Health, Votive Health. Sharing his story with us, he recalled a moment when he found himself sitting at the board of trustees alongside future, you know, Surgeon General Regina Benjamin, and she and many others on the board actually had MBAs. And Dan attributed that event, that particular moment in his career, that's sort of the first time he started shifting beyond the domain of clinical medicine and, and thinking about moving off the beaten path, so to speak. And that's when he decided to get an MBA and he never looked back. You also have a very similar career trajectory. So was there any specific moment for you when you decided to pursue an alternative career? And how helpful was the MBA and, and perhaps the HBS experience in, in shaping your career beyond clinical medicine? Yeah, so I guess like Dan, uh, I'm a healthcare investor now, um, and it sounds like similar to Dan in, in many ways. Uh, my path to get there was was pretty organic, actually. It's sequential in retrospect, but it was really a process of elimination for how this how this came about. So to just walk you through kind of what I was thinking along the way. So I was when I started medical school, the plan was to become a practicing clinician and to address healthcare access issues. And I thought the best way to do that would be to maybe be a practicing clinician, you know, see a lot of patients in a free clinic or a low cost clinic or something like that. But, you know, certainly as medical school started, I realized that the scope and scale of that problem was so much larger than any one clinician was ever going to be able to address that I started to think about alternate alternative tools that I could build while in school to have a bigger impact. So how could I do this with bigger scale? And at the time, I was considering three different paths. Uh, one was to use public policy uh, as a tool. Two was to use public health as a tool. And then three was to use business as a tool. And I didn't actually know which of those tools, so to speak, would be the right, the right lever to pull to expand healthcare access to the, to the greatest extent. So basically what happened during medical school is I sequentially trialed each of those areas. First, I spent a summer in DC uh, working in healthcare policy. Uh, after being there for a few months, pretty quickly realized that government work, at least in that capacity, was not, uh, for me, at least not at that stage of my career. And that was because it was largely bureaucratic, hierarchical, and more importantly, 
the best ideas are not always the ones that get pushed forward um, in Washington. It's more so the ideas that are the most politically feasible, uh, which are two very different things. So I didn't think that that was the right path for me. Um, I then sat in at classes at the School of Public Health. And what I realized when I was doing that was that a lot of the coursework actually overlapped directly with my medical school studies. So we took epidemiology in medical school, we took social medicine, we took a variety of these courses that the public health school was, was teaching. And so I just felt that the amount of new learnings that I would get from that would be relatively minor in comparison to some of the learning curves I might get elsewhere. So, so really what that left me with was, was the business route. And likewise, I, I sat in a classes at the business school. And what I realized when I was doing that was that the culture, the mentality, the content of business school, all of those things was so radically different than my medical school experience that I felt like I would benefit the most from that in terms of uh, personal growth. So <clears throat> ultimately decided to pursue the MBA. Um, and it wasn't until that point that I started to hear about these alternative careers that other people have had. So I started hearing about how, you know, the 25-year-old the sitting next to me in class was the one making decisions for Medicare while they were working for McKinsey. So like, you know, maybe McKinsey was doing some project on behalf of uh, CMS that and, you know, ultimately determining how healthcare for a certain condition would get delivered. So as I started to learn more and more about those alternative career paths, I got increasingly curious uh, because it sounded like a lot of the work that my peers had done was at scale and was you know, having meaningful impact on the US health system. So with that context, I actually decided to do management consulting in the summer uh, between my first and second year. And all the way up until that point um, in my graduate school trajectory, I had always planned uh, to do residency and to become a practicing clinician. But it was actually that summer at Bain that really changed that, uh, permanently changed that perspective for me. I and mean, while I was at Bain, I did a, a project for a large medical device company that fundamentally changed the way they sell uh, their products to doctors and hospitals across the U.S. And what that meant for the, for the healthcare system was that the healthcare system now got uh, all of these needed medical uh, supplies at a much lower cost than they were previously paying. So the benefit to the system was that costs were greatly reduced, and that was done through a variety of creative mechanisms that we came up with. But to make a long story short, the savings were in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So when I went back to HBS, I asked myself, you know, do I still want to continue down this path um, and go on to residency, or is there a faster track? To getting to my goal of expanding healthcare access at scale. And when I thought about projects that could have hundreds of millions of dollars of savings across the healthcare system, those seem to fit the bill much better than going and spending more years uh, in residency. So, you know, I guess what I'd say is in summary, my path was really one of kind of trial and error. I think the MBA process was very, very important for exposing me to those different career paths. And also the skills that I learned during the MBA program uh, were critical to the subsequent roles I had at, at Bain and, and now at MBM. Yeah, thank you, Kyle, uh, for sharing that story with us. Uh, you know, reading in between the lines a little bit, you mentioned sort of the scope of the impact. Traditionally, I sort of think about that within the clinic and within hospitals. Obviously, you're doing incredibly important work and you're having very meaningful, deep impact on a small group of people. 
But a lot of doctors want to broaden their scope of impact. And so when they come to that realization, which some people realize relatively early on, and they might forego medical school or residency altogether, some people come to that conclusion later on. Then they start pulling on some of those other levers that you very systematically, and, and spoken like a true consultant, very systematically actually broke down public policy, public health, and business. And, and those are the major levers that we actually do think about. So thank you for actually very clearly outlining uh, how you thought about broadening your scope of impact. You know, you mentioned consulting, so let's actually shift to talking about that. Before MVM, you mentioned that you worked uh, as a consultant for Bain & Company, obviously one of the most prestigious consultancies in the U.S. Consulting seems to be a pretty popular option nowadays for many docs. Um, some docs are playing increasing roles in the investing space, startup space, and elsewhere, but a lot do go into consulting. Uh, in your experience, what makes consulting an attractive area for curious MDs? And what were some of the most important lessons and skills you acquired during your time in consulting? I would say, um, and I'd broaden this out even a little bit, and I'd say both consulting as well as investment banking are really sort of no regret moves for most MDs who think that they might want to pursue a career in business. And, and I'll go into why in a second, but I think it's really important to just start by dispelling a widespread myth, um, which just keeps getting propagated in the medical uh, community, which is that doing these types of jobs for a period of time, whether it's consulting or investment banking, there's this myth that somehow that prohibits you from returning to medicine if you choose to do so. And that is just a myth that is just completely false, not backed by any data. And in fact, the data that I had when I was making my decision was one of, you know, looking at uh, other MDMBAs who had stepped away from medicine for a period of time, taken on those roles, and then very successfully came back, um, if they choose to do so, um, to very good residency programs, very good fellowship programs, or attending uh, positions. So you know, I guess just to start there, that anyone who's actually thinking about doing this, don't be scared away by people telling you that that's you know, a path that you can't do because that's just fundamentally wrong. And in fact, most people who have done that path will tell you that when they went back to apply to residency or fellowship, that their application and their candidacy was actually strengthened by that experience because they stood out relative to their peers that were applying. So just to, just to start there, because I think it's an important one. Uh, that people hear. Um, so why do I think um, consulting or investment banking are sort of no regret moves? Um, you know, I think that any MD who's considering transitioning their career to business really needs to build out a slightly different skill set um, than they've learned. So in clinical medicine, um, you know, you spend a lot of time studying basic science, you spend a lot of time studying disease mechanisms and treatments. All of that is highly valuable um, to a future career in investing, but you're really missing some key building blocks that need to get layered on there. And in my mind, those building blocks relate to Excel skills, PowerPoint skills, and just general business communication and etiquette, which is very different than how communication happens in hospitals, for instance. So I think that consulting and investment banking are great ways to develop all of that because all of these institutions, um, the big consulting companies, the big investment banks, they have very thoughtfully put in place human capital programs to make sure that uh, any new employee is, uh, is able to master all the skills that I just mentioned. 
And then it gets reinforced throughout your first or second year at these places uh, because there's a very strong apprenticeship culture. So it's like, it's not only do the company structure a formal program to teach you how to use Excel and PowerPoint and these other things, it then gets consistently reinforced by an apprenticeship model that helps you to become a master uh, at those skills. So I think that that is an absolutely critical component to setting yourself up for long-term success uh, in business. And the reason for that, um, especially if you decide to go into investing roles, is that most investing firms actually have a very small number of staff members. So even funds that manage billions of dollars, a lot of times there's only five or 10 investing employees at those firms. And, And the implication of that is that a lot of times the places don't actually have properly designed or or very well thought out human capital development programs. And as a result, the expectation is that when you arrive as a new employee, you'll already know how to do all of the basics. And the basics in this case mean being near expert in Excel and near expert in PowerPoint and be able to communicate properly. They will teach you all the investing stuff, right? They will teach you, you know, how to do term sheets and models and things like that. But the building blocks and the foundation has to be there because they simply don't have the internal resources in most cases to teach you how to do those things. So I think it's, I think it's really important. So if you ultimately want to make that shift from clinical medicine to business, I think starting at consulting or banking can give you that, uh, that skill set to really round you out and set you up for success uh, over the longer term. Kyle, thank you for uh, sharing that story with us. I you know, completely agreed. I've spoken with a lot of docs, some MDs, some MD MBAs who've gone into consulting and not one has actually regretted it simply because of some of the tools and things like that that you've mentioned that they actually do pick up. A lot of them call consulting and investment banking as quote unquote residency for business just because you get such a broad skill set, not only in Excel, PowerPoint, but in communication, managing clients. There's certainly some transferable skill set from the clinical world. Docs tend to be relatively good at you know, communicating with patients and, and client management in some ways can be similar to patient management where you can't be overtly mean, rude uh, to the people that you're serving. You have to sort of bring them along, even if they have the wrong idea as to what's going on, you have to sort of explain it in a way that actually brings them along. And so there is some transferable skills there, but to really, really build business acumen some of the more technical skills, certainly consulting, and it sounds like investment banking uh, is certainly a very good path. I also wanted to make a quick point about the myth that you sort of laid out really nicely, which is that, you know, once a doctor, always a doctor, you shouldn't do anything else. And if you do something else, you're not going to be a very good doctor. You know, that's certainly a segment uh, or a subset of old school docs that way. I think people are moving further and further away from that. I was just speaking with uh, a medical student at Columbia the other day who, after college, spent two years at Bain and spent two years in healthcare investing before deciding, hey, no, I actually want to go to medical school. And he's thriving right now. He said that, you know, whenever he goes to interviews, no one actually asks him about medicine. Everyone just asks him about all the cool non-clinical stuff he's done. That's certainly a, a differentiating factor. And more and more people are taking time off between college and medical school and residency, which I think is also a good trend broadly. Just just finishing up my last question here before we hand it over to Alex. Kyle, you sit on the board of GT Medical Technologies, which announced last year a $16 million financing led by MVM partners to expand availability of targeted therapies for patients with recurrent brain tumors. 
you know, take us to a boardroom meeting, you know, the discussions that take place in these boardrooms, how are they similar or different to some of the discussions that took place when you were a student here in the HBS classroom doing the case method? And I'm curious, what sort of insights are you able to offer management that perhaps non-doctors simply wouldn't be able to derive? So to the first part of the question, which is about, you know, how is how are these board discussions similar to, to the HBS classroom? I'd actually say they're remarkably similar. And so every board meeting, at least as I see it, has two main components to it. So the first component is providing a, a, a detailed business update that helps all the board members to level set on what the current state of the business is. And in many cases, the form that that part of the board meeting takes is typically a pre-read. So you might get a deck with 100 slides and there might be, you know, 10 slides on a marketing update, 20 slides on a financing update, 10 slides on a clinical update, et cetera, et cetera. So what you're doing in advance of the meeting is really carefully looking through all that and thinking about, okay, given the totality of the business where it stands today, what, what are the most important pieces that are going on here? And how do I tease this out? So, you know, you've got to take that information just like you would in HBS case. You've got to read it in advance without anyone providing you with additional context. And then you've got to show up to the meeting ready to discuss what you see as the most important items. Um, and so I think all of that is perfectly analogous um, to, to an HBS case. Um, and then in terms of the actual discussions that happen, um, most boards that I serve on are between five and, you know, let's say five and nine people. And what that means is that between the dialogue that's happening with, with the management team, um, who is often included in these board meetings, um, you've, got, so you've got a full team of managers talking, and then you've also got a full board of five to seven people who are talking. And what it means functionally is that no one gets to take too much airtime uh, individually. And therefore, what you have to do well to be a good board member is to ruthlessly prioritize, you know, the two or three things that you think are the most important to talk about and make sure that you're providing uh, that insight at that point in the conversation. So, you know, just like an HBS case where you maybe only selectively raise your hand one, two, three times max <laughs> uh, in a class, um, likewise in a board meeting, you know, you kind of want to be, uh, you want to make sure that everyone gets their opportunity to say things, but you want to make sure you weigh in with the things that are the most important to you. So that same process of prioritizing, of making sure that in advance you've thought through very crisp responses or questions that you want to ask or raise to the group, all of it completely um, is analogous in a, in a board discussion context. To the second part of your question, which is around you know, how, how do I as a doctor maybe help uh, our management teams? Um, I guess what I'd say is, you know, our portfolio companies, um, we're very lucky, all have highly talented um, clinicians and scientists involved with them. So the way that I think about my role is simply as a, as a peer or as an extension of those functions. So being a clinician really allows me to just kind of engage them in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. So for instance, if we're discussing at the board level uh, a new clinical study design or um, in specifically what types of patients we're going to screen for, the demographics we're going to try to select for. I can use my clinical knowledge to say, well, if we pick these types of patients rather than those types of patients, we might be more likely to see the, the intended effect that we want to demonstrate. 
Alternatively, I can think about, okay, if we're going to do a study, what do we actually want to show with a study in relation to how our competitors are positioning themselves? So there may be endpoints or secondary endpoints that you'd like to add that will help you commercially uh, when you go out to try to sell against anyone else who's competing in the space. So, the, so those are, I guess, our two kind of obvious ways in which being a clinician is very helpful. And I'd say the third way um, that, that it comes in quite handy, actually, is a lot of times medical products have multiple use cases. And part of the, part of the, the challenge and the opportunity as a board member is really helping the management team to focus on a core use case or a core set of use cases or finding new ways to use the product entirely that, that no one has thought of. Um, and I think if you come from a clinical background, it's much more obvious to you what the what the killer use case is or what the real opportunity is. And so you can provide that that perspective as well. And it, you know, the clinical background definitely plays out in numerous other ways too. Uh, but at the board level, those are the kind of the the three key areas that I see. That's great, Kyle. Thank you for you know taking us inside a boardroom. And who would have thought that HBS was just prepping us to be board members the entire time, which is, I guess, not a bad way to go, uh, to, to be honest with you. Uh, it's, it's like the case method, but theoretically with experts, hopefully with experts rather than generalists uh, trying to be experts. Uh, I'm just half kidding. Uh, you know, my HBS classmates are incredibly, incredibly talented. You know, just wanted to make a quick point. You talked about how being a clinician allows you to connect with other clinicians who are working at uh, the companies that you're actually invested in, they're your peers. Another way that I would put it is sort of being the role of a translator. A lot of doctors have told me that, you know, in their respective institutions or companies or firms, you know, they're the sort of gateway between the doctors or the clinicians and the business folks. They're the ones that are able to actually understand what both sides are saying and translate it for the other person, which is incredibly, incredibly valuable. So thank you again for answering that question. That's all I had for right now, but you know, I wanted to hand it over to Alex for the rest of the questions. Sure. Thank you very much, Chad and uh, Carl. It's such a pleasure listening to the discussion and thank you so much for sharing uh, your journey and interesting perspectives. I guess I just wanted to follow up on two points. The first is thank you for sharing your experience with healthcare access and I've had a bit of a similar experience practicing medicine in Syria during the civil war, be it as a healthcare provider, seeing the limitations of the system or when my family needed access to healthcare. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but I always felt that for me, when I will up there making decisions that would impact millions of people, I would always keep this firsthand experience in mind aiming to improve access for this segment of the population whenever I have the opportunity. And the other, the other point that I wanted to follow up on is your trial and error path in terms of finding how you can achieve impact. And I think this reminds me of one of my favorite books, The Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I think like it takes a lot of courage to, to say that I don't know what my path is going to be and I will try to find what's the optimal path for me and what's going to be my product market fit in the world, if, if I can borrow some concepts from the tech world. I guess on my side, I wanted to, to ask a little bit about your experience with investments and specifically around the investment framework. So earlier this year, MVM invested in Optinos, which is marketing X-Hands, which is a really interesting way to deliver uh, therapeutics uh, for patients with chronic rhinosinusitis. 
MVM also invested in Embrace, which is creating a new category and teeth straightening. So, Carl, as an investor with a medical background, what is your investment framework? How has your medical experience impacted your investment framework? And what would you consider an ideal investment opportunity in the healthcare space? Yeah, so from a framework perspective, I think there's a critical element to to all the deals that we do or, or a set of critical elements. Really, the way that every compelling investment starts is identifying an unmet need um, within healthcare. And so how I define and how we at MVM define the unmet need can be either a clinical unmet need, which could mean, you know, a disease state that has no existing therapy or a disease state that has therapies that inadequately address that disease. We also define it, um, and this is somewhat unique to us, as an unmet need in terms of health economics. So, you know, if, if there is a good solution or a good treatment for something, but it's so expensive that no one can afford it, then that in our mind is also an unmet need. So it all starts there. What is the unmet need? Do we really see an unmet need? And then if there is an unmet need, the next question we ask is really, is this a large enough addressable market? So in other words, if we invest in this and we make this product, you know, if we bring it to its full potential, how big, how large does that opportunity really, really seem? And that has to do with the theme that I mentioned earlier around scale of impact. If something's got very big scale, um, it's going to typically have a very large addressable market. So if, some, if something is addressing an unmet need and it's in a large addressable market area, the third thing we start to think about is the product differentiation. And product differentiation could be related to costs. It could be related to efficiencies. It could be that you're simply offering a new therapeutic mechanism that didn't exist before. But what we like to see is something that's truly different than what any other competitor is doing. The fourth piece of the framework would really relate to ensuring that there's barriers to entry. And, you know, barriers to entry take so many different forms. The, the most common one people think about is intellectual property, um, because that can give you a very strong barrier to entry for a long time. But in healthcare, there are other barriers to entry that allow you to uh, avoid, you know, other companies copying your very innovative idea. And some of those other barriers could relate to the regulatory process that companies have to go through. Some of them could relate to the reimbursement processes that companies have to go through. It could also relate to just the, the clinical path to get into guidelines. Um, all of those different pieces could represent, you know, unique forms of, of barriers. So, so if something is addressing a, a large unmet need, uh, it's clearly differentiated relative to everything else we're seeing. And we think it's going to be difficult for someone to, co to, to copy it. I think those are really the tenets of a, of a good substrate for an investment. And the last piece that's absolutely critical is that you've got to have a strong team in place that you trust, right? So you could have you know, the best product in the world addressing the biggest unmet need, have all the barriers that, that could exist, you know, that could be known to mankind. But if the management team is not the right team to be out there promoting that product, um, then that becomes more difficult to invest in. So I think that's kind of the X factor for us is making sure that we're backing really good people that we want to that we want to work with over the long term. Um, so fundamentally, if something meets all of those criteria that I just mentioned, I think fundamentally it means it's an interesting product uh, from an investment standpoint. 
And then the key remaining question at that point really relates to deal terms. Um, so, you know, can you find a set of terms that will work uh, for everyone that's involved, both the existing investors in the company, as well as us, as well as the management team? And if you can solve for that, um, then, then that's kind of the final step in the process. Thank you very much, Carl. That is a great perspective. And I wonder, as a medical doctor, where do you see the most differentiation that you provide? Is it around the unmet need? like sizing the market, the product differentiation, or understanding the barriers to entry. And this perhaps relates to my next question, which is around how do you think about your positioning as an investor? Uh, one of the classes that we had uh, this semester is around starting a private equity firm. And we had it with Professor Bob White, who was one of the founders of Bain Capital. And he always told us that as an investor, I need to be the best at either sourcing or due diligence or value adding or exit opportunities. And so I wonder, as a medical doctor, where do you think that your medical expertise has positioned you the best across the different skill sets that you need as a growth investor? So it's a really great question. What I would say is that it really helps me in numerous ways that span all of those key areas um, that, that Bob mentioned. So broadly, you know, the way that I think about my job, it sounds like is pretty, pretty similar to what you just described, which is that I've got to source deals. I've got to do really great diligence. I've got to execute and negotiate transactions. And then I've got to work with our portfolio companies uh, to improve their business and make sure that we can, you know, build, build the most value possible. So just to go through each of those pieces, the medical training actually has helped on every single one of them. So on the sourcing side, having a sense of that unmet need is absolutely critical. So just to put it in perspective, you know, we see thousands of companies a year, every single year at MVM. And so when I'm out there and I'm trying to figure out which, which companies I should be spending more time with or which ones are likely to be the category winners uh, for that for that treatment area, having that intuition around, is there really an unmet need here and how big is it? You have a good sense of that firsthand because you've taken care of a lot of the patients that would be treated by the device, or you've spent time with the clinicians that will be using the device. And so you can more quickly have a, have a clear sense of what is really an unmet need versus what is kind of a, a nice to have. So that's how it helps on the sourcing side. On the diligence side, I'd say my clinical knowledge really helps to focus uh, diligence on the critical areas um, that are most important to the diligence. So, you know, because I've spent, and like you guys, because we've spent time in hospitals, when I see a new product, if it's targeted, let's say, to orthopedic uh, surgeons versus oncologists, each of those constituencies is going to have a very different set of questions uh, when they're viewing a new product. The orthopedist is going to ask, is this thing safe? Okay, as, as long as I believe it's safe, the next question is, how does this feel in my hand? Do I, do I, do I trust kind of the engineering and the, and the thinking behind it and the physics? Um, whereas if you were to take a product to an oncologist, the first thing the oncologist is going to ask you is, you know, where's your randomized control trial? And if you don't have it, think about using it. So that's a very simplistic dichotomy between those two um, specialties, but it's just to say that having an intuition around what that clinician is going to ask and what's going to be important to them really helps you to figure out what the most critical steps are in your due diligence. Um, because if you think it's going to all be about workflow and efficiency, 
um, you better figure out exactly how much that product improves workflow and efficiency. If you think it's going to be critical to have an RCT, you better convince yourself that the existing data is so strong and so compelling that it can bridge you to uh, to, to believing in a very strong outcome if an RCT were to happen. Um, so on the diligent side, it's very helpful. On executing and negotiating transactions, um, which is kind of the next step in the process, you know, I think this really that step of the private equity job is all about finding creative ways um, to get deals done. And it's really where soft skills start to shine through. So the things you practice in medicine and the thing they teach you in your patient doctoring classes like asking open-ended questions, um, those types of things actually really help you to uh, figure out what the boundaries are of a potential negotiation. Or even, you know, skills like staying calm and collected when your counterparty is very emotional, uh, which of course happens every day in the hospital to all of us. Those types of things are very, very important during a negotiation. So staying clear-headed, even when other people are emotional, I think I think there's few careers uh, outside of medicine, actually, that could prepare you in the same way uh, that, that medicine does. So then finally, I'd say with the, the final step is, you know, let's say we've, uh, we've sourced the deal, we've done the diligence, now we've executed a transaction. The last step is working with the portfolio companies. Um, and I'd say what, what, we, what we're really able to help them with from the clinical perspective is thinking about the right clinical studies or health economic studies that we need to execute um, in order to drive adoption. Um, and so in a lot of way, a lot of times we're trying to get our products put into medical guidelines. And so by very carefully thinking about what do those guidelines and consensus committees want to see, we can then go and work directly with our companies to make sure that the right studies are executed and we can provide them with the capital to execute those studies. Um, and of course, having an MD uh, to think through those, you know, what the right path is and what the right studies are is, is super important. So, so it's to say, to Bob's point, it provides you differentiation across all the different pieces, um, which I think is quite helpful. Thank you very much, Kyle. And uh, I want to follow up on the point that you've mentioned in terms of the soft skills. And I was speaking to one of my good friends in consulting, and we were discussing a topic of transferable skills. And I remember she mentioned to me that the most important transferable skill that she took from medicine to consulting is being able to build rapport with people very quickly. And she gave me the example of being in an emergency department with a patient who you're seeing for the first time and needing to build rapport with that patient and getting them to trust you in a very short amount of time. So I certainly appreciate this point that, that you've mentioned. Maybe shifting gears a little bit here on the topic of digitization and healthcare and and all the exciting stuff that are happening in digital health and healthcare machine learning and all of that. I'm doing my PhD now in healthcare machine learning. So I'm knee deep in like technicals, analyzing healthcare data and all of that. Uh, Chad and I have been looking at the space of uh, prescription digital therapeutics. We think it is really interesting. And to your point around the barriers to entry, like digital ecosystem of healthcare is creating completely new barriers to entry to what we've seen, for example, in pharma. So there's a lot of transformation that is happening in that space. And we're seeing regulators like the FDA adopting to that transformation in terms of new pathways like the pre-certification. So I'm curious to know from your position, Kyle, and with your extensive experience, how do you view the space of digital health 
and digital transformation in healthcare evolving over the next five to seven years, do you think we're going to see a lot of consolidation, for example, in digital health solutions? What's your mental model to thinking about the future of digitization and healthcare? Well, it's a very broad question because there's a lot of ways in which digital solutions are impacting the space. So one area you hear a lot of talk about relates to AI, um, which I think is, I do think holds a lot of promise for allowing us to all do our jobs better. You know, I I think that there's generally a perception out there that somehow AI is going to replace the clinician at some point in some end state. I think the companies that think that way are likely being way too simplistic and are unlikely to be successful. The companies that I see being successful, um, at least at this at this stage in the game, are the ones that really help the clinicians to do their job better, to augment the clinician, so to speak. To give you some specific examples um, of things that seem promising, so you know, I've seen AI companies that help physicians to more rapidly type notes uh, from their patient visits. Um, I think those will get a lot of traction. I think there's been a lot of AI built into radiology workflow such that the AI can flag certain things that, you know, maybe the radiologist is less likely to see on their quick pass, or at least prompt them to look at something that seems suspicious based on the AI algorithm. And so by doing that, you can actually improve the physician's diagnostics, but at the end of the day, you still need that, that clinician there to do a lot of that. And I think in the absence of their involvement and participation, you won't see a whole lot of, uh, <laughs> a whole lot of traction. So that the AI type stuff that I think is going to win the game, at least for the next five or 10 years, are the solutions that are improving uh, clinician workflow, improving clinical outcomes by working with, to, working with clinicians to augment whatever it is that they currently do. So that would be one area that I see a lot uh, on the digital side uh, of things happening. And I think the other area that really strikes me right now are digital therapeutics, which I think is an absolutely fascinating area. There are very interesting companies um, that have now proven convincingly uh, via RCTs that their solutions can do things that even traditional drugs cannot do. So for instance, there's now an AR solution that um, augmented reality headset that actually helps to reduce pain uh, in patients that um, have, you know, unretractable pain and have even tried opioids and it didn't work for those patients. Yet this augmented reality uh, video game headset um, actually now has breakthrough status with the FDA and has proven that it can do that um, in its clinical studies. And that's just one of many, many, many examples of things that are coming down the pipeline. The only thing holding back digital therapeutics at the moment is reimbursement. Because they're not typical pharma drugs, I think the federal government and commercial payers haven't yet figured out the best way to compensate those companies for the products that they're, that they're offering. Um, so even though they're producing the same or better outcomes um, than traditional pharma drugs, it's going to be a little bit of time before we see those widely adopted because the payers have to catch up with the clinical efficacy uh, of those products. But uh, I think those are going to be a really interesting uh, area going forward. And I would imagine in the next two to three years, you'll start to see many more of these become household names. Kyle, those are great points. And I think it is absolutely spot on what you've mentioned in terms of we need to build AI that augments the human operator rather than that it replaces them. 
And one of the things that we're working very heavily on in our lab at Oxford is looking at ways how we can change how we measure the performance of healthcare AI algorithms. At the moment, like if you go to nature, machine intelligence, or biomedical engineering, and you see all these new innovative algorithms being published, and until the day we measure the performance of the algorithm based on its performance on the data, but that is not the real world performance because the real world performance of the algorithm is going to be the performance of the human operator who has made the decision informed by the algorithm. So I absolutely agree from that point and I, I find it very interesting. And I think also on the digital therapeutic side, if we look at the opportunity of continuous personalization, right? Like once we roll out a biopharmaceutical drug, like we cannot change it, right? Once you roll out a prescription digital therapeutic, we'll be able to continuously collect data and personalize, I mean, theoretically until infinity, right? Like the more data you'll collect, the more personalization you'll be able to do. So I think that is fascinating and very interesting. Perhaps moving on to my last question around basically medical education. We were having a discussion a couple of months ago with Alex Deblias, who was the ex-global co-chairman of Goldman Sachs. He was a partner at McKinsey. He's currently a managing director at CVC. And originally he trained as a cardiac surgeon. And one of the points that he mentioned is that medical school would be much more interesting if it incorporated element of entrepreneurship. I think Shad mentioned a very important point around the role of physician as a trans, multidisciplinary physicians as translators, bringing innovations from one discipline to the other. So I'm curious to know your thoughts, Kyle, in terms of how can the medical education experience and structure change to prepare physicians to play a more active role in shaping the, the future of healthcare? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think the short of it is that it needs to adapt in, in numerous ways. I think the biggest way, though, just relates to ensuring that clinicians actually know how to structure and run uh, teams in a very effective way, which is not a skill set that you ever really talk about at all in, in medical school. People aren't uh, systematically teaching physicians about leadership. Um, it is a big topic in business school. But just to put some examples to this to explain why it's important. So the general trend, at least in my view, is for lower value, repetitive, let's call it algorithmic care to increasingly flow to paraprofessionals. So nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and for the more complex healthcare needs to flow to, to the physicians. And you see that broadly pay, playing out all over the spectrum of healthcare. So if you walk into a lot of emergency departments today, you'll see a lot of them have what are called fast tracks, which are where the patients with non-complex care are sent. Um, and they're typically uh, cared for by physician assistants. Whereas the patients with the more complex and acute cases, so if they're having a heart attack or an extreme trauma, those are the ones physicians are taking care of. So the general concept is, you know, give the, the less complex work to paraprofessionals as a way to expand our ability to deliver healthcare to the greatest number of people. We see this play out with nurse practitioners as well. So on the psychiatry side, you increasingly see nurse practitioners doing a lot of the basic mental health care uh, for many patients, whereas the actual psychiatrists now are increasingly focusing on complex disease. So the patients who have failed multiple antidepressants, the patients who have schizophrenia, 
things like that that are far more complex. And the list goes on and on and on of, of this general trend of paraprofessionals becoming critical to our day-to-day lives and, and critical to high-quality and efficient patient care. So I think the key thing that MD training really needs to adapt to is teaching the physicians how to interact with all these other paraprofessionals um, and how to lead a great team, uh, because now the medical team really comprises all of these different constituents. You know, I think if you rewound the clock 10 or 15 or 20 years, most clinicians were working as sole practitioners, or at most they were working in practices of two or three people, maybe with like one nurse. Um, But that's not how the healthcare system is designed today. It's increasingly being designed to be more efficient. And what that means is that the physician needs to play the quarterback role where it's orchestrating all these different uh, other professionals. And as far as I can see and tell medical school, the the current medical school curriculum at most places does not equip clinicians with those leadership skills that are necessary to, to really structure and lead those Uh, lead those teams. So I think that that's, to me, one area where the medical curriculum has a lot to learn from the business school curriculum um, and would benefit a lot by having some carryover uh, from from that education uh, system. Thank you, Kyle. And I certainly agree on the point of uh, reorientation of some of the tasks of of, of physicians. I remember when I was during one year of uh, medical residency back in Syria, my residency was in internal medicine, but I was pretty much doing everything. Like it was kind of in the, in the middle of the civil war. So like we had to do surgery, we had to do everything. One of my friends from the masters that I've done at Oxford, he used to be a medical doctor in Cameroon. And during his, the last years of his medical school and first years of residency, he was stationed at a rural hospital small medical center rather than a hospital and he was the only medical doctor there as a last year medical student he had to deal with minor surgeries he had to deal with like pregnancies and and a lot of different variations of conditions and certainly there is a lot of as you've mentioned algorithmic and non-complex procedures that can be channeled through more effective care pathways so Carl, this has been an amazing conversation i certainly really enjoyed it uh, my last question is for our audience, perhaps, is how can our listeners uh, learn more about the work and impact that you're doing and what kind of avenues can they follow to, to keep up to date? Yeah, so the best way to do that would be just to add me on LinkedIn. Um, I periodically post things related to our uh, new investments and in some of our portfolio companies, which will give everyone a sense of the, the different things that we're working on. Um, and, you know, certainly any of the MDs out there should feel free to, to reach out to me if, if you think it would be helpful to connect live. Um, physicians who are interested in medicine, we're a pretty small uh, group of people. Um, so I'm always happy to, to help in any way that I can um, and always happy to hop on the phone and, and meet new people. So um, hopefully this podcast will be a good starting point for everyone, uh, but always happy to happy to continue the conversation if it would be helpful. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Kyle. It, it was a fascinating conversation and I've learned a lot from you. So thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Chad, that was such a fascinating conversation with Kyle. I think there is so many insights to learn from, but perhaps honing on one, my key takeaway from the conversation with Kyle was around how his previous experience with healthcare access influenced and shaped his decisions later down the line. So Kyle, 
told us about the healthcare access issue that he had when he was younger. And I think it was very powerful when he talked about how this firsthand experience of with lack of access to healthcare has shaped his career decisions, his investment decisions. And so I think that brought me a little bit back to my own experience, for example, in uh, working as a medical doctor in Syria and like the limitations with, uh, with a healthcare system in a low-income country or a country that is in a, in a conflict zone. So I think all of us had personal experiences with uh, limitations of the healthcare system. And I think it is very powerful to remember those limitations and those firsthand experiences that we had so that later down the line, when we are advanced in our career, we're able to actually make meaningful changes that would impact uh, how healthcare is delivered and how healthcare is available in in these locations or in these uh, juncture points. So that's takeaway from my side, Chad, over to you. Yeah, no, that's a takeaway that I certainly echo. I think our backgrounds, our second stories, as one of my professors uh, at HBS likes to call it, has a, has a profound influence on who we are and the types of decisions we make and, and what we value. Uh, and sometimes it's stuff that people don't even know about. You know, my main takeaway was was a very practical advice that Kyle gave about uh, his path. You know, he was in medical school, then he went to business school, then he did consulting for a couple of years before he moved to growth equity. And his general sentiment was that you don't want to jump into something without having the right skill set to succeed. It's better to take one to two to three years to develop the skill sets that you actually need so that when you enter a job, you're set to go. For example, in consulting, there's a well-trodden system of mentorship to develop people into being managers to hone you know, speaking skill sets or how to manage parallel processes, how to work well with PowerPoint or Excel. There are certain skill sets that you get at, in consulting or in investment banking or some of these other spaces. Uh, you know, in a lot of pharmas, for example, there's rotational programs that let you rotate for a few months in different segments within that large pharma. So you get a taste of how things run in different departments so that you come out after just being ready to go. Some places like small VC firms are the total opposite because there might be three or four people managing a large capital pool. And so responsibility is high from the very beginning without much time for actually training. So if you start a job without that skill set, it can be easy to get overwhelmed in such a setting. And so I think some of it just requires some conceptual reframing. You know, the important part is not just getting the job, but making sure you put yourself in a position to thrive when you actually start the job. Because letting go after a few months of a new job or, or less than a year, that can send a bad signal to future employers. And so just being patient and when you are applying for a job, asking yourself very deliberately, can I perform this job exceptionally? And if I can't, you know, does it make sense to get some of the more concrete skill, set, skill sets before I apply to this particular job? Um, so I, I thought that was very, very good practical advice that Kyle gave. That's a direct reflection of sort of the career trajectory that he's taken. So that's it for the episode. It was a great one for our audience members. Join us for our next episode uh, where we'll continue chatting with 
just brilliant and very interesting medical doctors who have achieved success in different walks of life outside of the traditional clinical and research career path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and to catch our latest podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com, or you can visit our website at potvppodcast.com. See you next week.